We'll begin with prayer here this morning. Um, let's open up. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day that we can come together and learn more about your word. I do pray, Heavenly Father, for our teacher, Bob, that you would heal his voice and allow him to speak your truth to all of us and to the wider church in America and around the world. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can look in these things, that we can look at who really followed Moses. Uh, is it the church or is it those who are still steeped in Judaism? And Heavenly Father, we pray that we would think well upon this text and acts, that we would be drawn towards you and your promises. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, just to let everyone know what's going on, Bob and I had a wonderful radio program that we got to do together this past Tuesday, but he called, I think it was Friday, and I use call lightly because his voice was shot, and uh, he just said, my voice is gone, and he's going to go see a specialist. So today, we have Moses, and I'm Aaron. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be the mouthpiece, so <laughs> I'll be speaking on behalf of Bob here. And we have a wonderful passage in Acts 6, 8 through 15. So what I think I'll do, Bob, is I'll begin reading the, the text. And I'll read, and then we'll have Bob do some comment. His voice is weak, but we can get some out, I think. And, uh, I don't know if you can hear me at all. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So let me read the text for you all. This is Acts 6, 8 through 15. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly introduced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place, that would be the temple, and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Verse 15, it says, And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Wow. So here we have this dispute between Stephen and the Sanhedrin, the leadership of Israel. And the dispute is, who is really following Moses? They're accusing him of distorting what Moses taught. They're accusing Jesus of destroying what Moses had taught in the law. And what Stephen is going to lay out is, no, by following Christ, you're following precisely what Moses taught and what Moses and the law led to. So, Bob, go ahead and comment. Um, We got a lot of verses. We'll hand them out to you or Eric. Sure, sounds good. So let's, um, should we begin? We'll go to the next slide. Okay. Great. Now, here we see Stephen's words are confirmed. Notice, I'll read this, and then we'll look up some verses. Acts 6, 8, and 9, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. Now, notice here this phrase, grace and power, we look back to Acts 4.33. Can someone look up Acts 4.33? We'll have uh, Peter Weeham do that. 
Acts 4.33. Yeah. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, grace and power. So think of the, there you have what's probably a Hendiadus. You have this idea of grace. God's grace leads to power in preaching. And what's unique here is, here you have Stephen speaking with full of grace and power. But notice the next line. It says, he was also performing great wonders and signs. That is to show that he is a spokesperson for God. And in fact, notice the phrase grace and power. Bob has pointed out numerous times that throughout Luke Acts, Luke uses that phrase to show us that Stephen is a reliable witness. And so uh, Bob has pointed this out, and this has been revolutionary for me to help me understand the Luke-Acts narrative. It should really be read as a one-volume set. And for whatever reason, remember the divisions in our Bible, the way it's laid out are 66 books. All the 66 books are inspired, but the way they're laid out isn't necessarily inspired. I think Luke, we should have been put right next to Acts, but we won't complain. We have all the books, right? So the other thing I'd point out is notice this wonders and signs. These are something that typically the apostles did. And uh, there's a passage that speaks to that. In fact, when we look in um, uh, Acts chapter 5, remember that the apostles were doing signs and wonders, so much so that if the handkerchief of Peter or the shadow of Peter would fall upon somebody, they would be healed. And so again, these signs and wonders, the way we look at it today in our society We look at signs and wonders as if they somehow prove the existence of God. That's what the average American wants. Show me a sign or wonder so I can know the existence of God. But the way that they were used in both the Old and the New Testament wasn't to prove the existence of God. That was already known. But it was to prove who speaks for God. That's the idea. In fact, um, I know there's a passage, Bob, in, uh, in Hebrews that talks about these signs and wonders of the apostles. Oh, okay. Yeah, and we'll, we'll look up that passage in Hebrews where you see that the signs and wonders were a unique thing that the apostles did. So, again, I'm not claiming that Stephen was an apostle, but remember, according to Ephesians 2.20, our New Testament and the church was built on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So think about that text for just a moment. Ephesians 2.20 when it says that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Paul could have said that it was built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles, but he doesn't. So Paul's point in Ephesians 2.20 is not that the church was built on the Old Testament prophets, although partly it is, and he wouldn't disagree with that, and then the apostles, but his point is that there are apostles and prophets in the New Testament. So the way I would look at a man like Stephen is I would see him as a prophet of God who is speaking the very words of God. Uh, Mark, just think about Mark. Mark wrote us part of the New Testament, a gospel, but he's not an apostle, but he's under apostolic authority, the apostolic authority of Peter. And so I would call him a prophet as well. Oh, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's good having a, it's like our own Laga software right here. <laughs> just push the button, Bob comes up with it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Um, okay, so you know what's so funny too, Bob? Your voice is fine Tuesday, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm glad we did radio. I know, we got that in. And we were singing too. No. <laughs> okay, uh, this is Hebrews chapter 2, so feel free to turn your Bible to that. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll look at uh, verses, well, let's just look at verses 1 through 4. 
Again, this is Hebrews chapter 2. And I just want to show you how the signs and wonders were accompanied, or I should say the apostles were accompanied by signs and wonders. Again, to show who spoke for God. Hebrews says, this is Hebrews 2.1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, so he's thinking of what was revealed at Sinai, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution under the old covenant, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So stop there. Notice the lesser to greater argument. If you were culpable of sinning under the old covenant, how much more are you culpable if you disregard the words of the gospel, the words of Christ? He says, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. That would be the apostles. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so, therefore, God used signs and wonders to show who were his spokesmen. And you have that right here with Stephen. Stephen is speaking for God. Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8. Let's see. Oh, yeah. Great catch. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts, part of the earth. Wow. Excellent. Yeah, and, you know, Bob put in his notes, I think it's an astute point, Bob. You say this shows the link to Jesus. So here Stephen is also incorporated in that that commission in Acts 1.8. Remember Acts 1.8, that's the programmatic verse for the entire book of Acts. That's how it flows. You see that there are going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And sure enough, that's exactly the outline of the book of Acts. Now, Acts 2.22, can someone look up that passage? Thanks, Mike. Uh, Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Ah, thank you. Sorry, I tipped over the recorder here. Okay, Let's make sure time's going forward. It's okay. Okay, good. All right, thank you for that, Mike. So yeah, so here, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. So Jesus, in a sense, is the apostolos, isn't he? The original sent one par excellence. So think of Christ. He is the original one who speaks by the authority of God because he's God himself. And what we're going to see here is the debate is who's following Moses. Well, didn't Moses speak that there would be a prophet from God? that would come up from the ranks of Israel. In, remember back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18? And if people wouldn't listen to him, it would be required of them. So Jesus then is the spokesman for God. He's God himself. Well, then he dispenses that to the apostles and prophets, and now they're also speaking for Christ. Good. This is Luke. Oh, okay. Acts 10.38 It says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Wow. 
Very good. Yeah, so what's interesting, notice that phrase there, you know that Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit. Think back to Isaiah 61. This is a text that Jesus preaches on when he's in his synagogue. And he says that the Lord had anointed him to preach good news to the poor, and he was anointed by the Spirit. So when we think of the Messiah, the Mashiach, what does it mean? What does Mashiach mean? What does it mean to be the Messiah? It means to be anointed, doesn't it? And so, yes, anointings by the Holy Spirit, they came upon prophets, priests, and kings of the Old Testament. But now, in the last days, they came upon the Son. And He is the one who was endowed by the Spirit, and He's the one who therefore uniquely speaks for God. All right, He's, yeah, Peter. What was the Isaiah verse? Uh, Isaiah 61, yep. And that's a key text, I think, to go to because Jesus shows that he is the fulfillment of that. And specifically, the first four verses are, um, well, the, the whole thing's obviously critical, but the first four verses are the most relevant. Yeah. yeah, very good. So Jesus, therefore, is speaking for God. All those that he sends out are speaking for God. And so who isn't speaking for God? Well, it's the Sanhedrin. It's the leadership of Israel. They want to bind people to law-keeping. Well, what's the problem with being bound to law-keeping? You, exactly. Mike said you can't keep it. That's the problem. So if the law had been given that could provide eternal life, yeah, wonderful, but it isn't. And we're going to be looking at that, by the way, at the sermon today. The Jews were those who constantly boasted in three things. One was their nationality and the fact that they were recipients of the covenant. Two, it was the fact that they were the ones who were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And number three, they boasted and being the recipients of the law. The problem is they can't keep the law. If you can't keep the law, what do you need? You need the remedy. And the remedy, the Messiah, was predicted by Moses. Remember the very first messianic promise. What book was it in? Well, it's in Genesis. Genesis 3, right? The seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. Well, who wrote Genesis 3? Moses did. So Moses was teaching the gospel, and that's what Bob's laying out for us, is, hey, who speaks for God? Is it the religious leaders of Israel at this time, or is it Stephen and the apostles and ultimately Jesus Christ? Well, of course, it's Stephen's the last. like Moses. Yes. Oh, okay, yeah. So what Bob wants us to see now is the link between Stephen and Moses. Okay, and there's a link here that we're going to see in Acts 7.22. Can someone read that passage? Um, uh, oh, thanks, Mike. Uh, so Acts 7.22. Peter's distracting me. <laughs> That's all right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Acts 7.22. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. Wow. Just like Stephen. Yeah, exactly right. Let's do that again. Yeah, so just like Moses, Stephen speaks in the same way. And therefore, what should we do? We should listen to him. He's one who has been sent out by Jesus. Now, the freedmen here were formerly enslaved and now free. The opponents here, notice on the screen it says they're Greek-speaking Jews like Stephen. But they're not buying into this idea that Christ is this Messiah. They're going to go after Stephen and all those who proclaim that. And I thought it was very interesting. Bob pointed this out several months ago. But notice the leadership of Israel. They're not concerned if you do miracles. They don't care if you heal What they're concerned with is prohibiting the preaching of Christ. That really bothers. And the same thing is true today, isn't it? 
If you go, to, go out and do a good work, if you go feed the poor and you do it as a Christian, no one's going to object except for maybe the ACLU if you do it in school. They'll object to anything. The ACLU is really rotten, aren't they? That's bad, yeah. <laughs> but the point is, is if you preach Christ, everyone is going to object, right? It's the same thing today. Now, do you, do you want to move on? Is that okay? Okay. All right. So, the words that are powerful and logical, that's what Stephen is speaking here. I'll read the text. Acts six ten through 11. It says, But they were unable, these are the opponents, to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So, here they are unable to defeat Stephen's true speech. And someone, can someone look up Luke twenty one fourteen? Someone look up that one and read. Uh, Brian, do you have that quick on your... The, the link here to Luke 21 just shows that it was promised by Christ that you didn't have to prepare ahead of time when you were being persecuted, these men, but that the Holy Spirit, yes, would lay upon them what they were to say. And sure enough, then we see that being fulfilled now in Acts. Now, um, yeah, go ahead and read it. I'll make a quick comment. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Exactly. And then, I'm sorry, continue on to verse 15. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Well said. Now, Bob, how many students in seminary would use this passage as an excuse not to prepare <laughs> for their Greek grammar test? The right? teachers won't let you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So realize the context. This is for, I would say, emergency situations only. In other words, this doesn't give an excuse for us not to be prepared. Think of, oh yeah, Eric. Think about as we're going back to him. Think about First Peter three fifteen. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and respect. But there are times when you are persecuted where you can rely upon the Lord. He will give you. Uh, the words to speak, and specifically for the apostles and prophets here. Yeah, I, I just want to really amplify what you're saying, and that is that. Um, and now I'm not a. I've been very deficient on memorizing scripture. You know, it's no, just I'm sure so I'm. I've raised my hand as one of the first ones to say I'm guilty. But um, all of the I, I've read somewhere, and I think it's true that the great. Um, some of the great giants of the faith have just committed em- enormous amounts of, of biblical text to memory because then it's in you, yeah. and it comes to you when you need it, you know? Well and, said. And that happens. That's where we, we want to put ourselves in positions where we need that. Right. That's all we've got to rely on. You remember Bob a few weeks ago defined what biblical wisdom was? It was the knowledge of God and the ability to apply it. And you're right. Um, one, of, one of the risks that we can have, and I completely agree with you, we should memorize text of Scripture. However, there's one concern that I would have, is I've seen it and we all have, is where people will memorize Scripture, but conceptually they don't understand how it fits together. And so they're applying a Scripture that doesn't apply to the task at hand, if you know what I mean. Um, one would be the one in Chronicles where people apply a passage and a promise that was given to Israel, and now they apply it to America. And you see those things often. So Yes, let's memorize scripture, but the most important thing, job number one, is to understand the scripture. If we don't understand the meaning of the text, then we're divorced from the spirit. So, yes, we should understand it and memorize it. Yeah, amen. That's well said. So, all right, uh, Bob, um, what do you want to go on to here? 
I'm sorry, Luke 24? Okay. Uh, 27 and 44. Okay, Luke 24, 27. Can someone read that? And also uh, Luke 24, verse 44. Luke, Luke 24, I'm sorry, Luke 24 verse, 27. verse 27 and verse 44. Verse 27, the yep. beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Excellent. And verse 44, now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me and in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Excellent. Boy, these are great cross-references, Bob. Must. Thank you. Yeah, must, so, the divine necessity. Stephen is doing what Jesus did, explaining the truth from Moses. Yes. Okay, so you're looking at which word, Bob, the must? must. Yeah, day. The day, the divine necessity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, amen. The, the one point I was going to make, too, is notice here, everyone, in Luke 24, 27, and 44. In 27, you have a twofold breakdown of the scriptures beginning with Moses and with the prophets. Okay, does everyone see that? So what did Moses write? Well, he wrote the Pentateuch, right, the law. So there the law and the prophets are the Old Testament scriptures, right? But notice in Luke 24, 44, he says, these are the things that were written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So typically when we think of the Old Testament, we think of three parts. This is where you get the term Tanakh. You get the Torah, the T, right? You get the Navaim, which is the prophets, and then the Kathavim, which is the writings. Okay, so those three aspects, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so when you read your New Testament, you'll see sometimes they'll just summarize. They'll just say Moses wrote. And it really refers to the Pentateuch, but it, in some sense it represents the whole Old Testament. Sometimes they'll use the law and the prophets, and that means the entire Old Testament. And sometimes they'll break it down into the law, the prophets, and the writings, all three categories there so yeah so i'm sorry i still didn't see the must where did i 47 oh in in 44 44 these are all the things which are written must oh there it is i'm sorry right at the end of the text there yeah so yeah in the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled right so again bob has pointed this numerous times day in the greek dei when you see must in your english version the greek term behind it is day and it often has to do with the divine necessity. That is, God has ordained that these things will happen. Okay, so that's very exciting. We know then that God is behind this, that these things will occur because he's divinely ordained them. Yeah. John 5, Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. Amen. Yeah. So Stephen, when he preaches Christ, is standing with Moses. Right, Not right. Against him as Not against claimed. him. Amen. Well, so did everyone hear that? Um, can we get, can you, <laughs> that was well said. Can you get it into the, uh, I'll try. <laughs> In John five, Jesus said, Moses wrote of me. Amen. The dispute in Acts is who is the true uh, spokesperson who's following Moses. Amen. Moses wrote about Christ. So Stephen is preaching Christ. Therefore, is standing at one with Moses. Amen. The Jewish opponents are actually standing against Moses, though they claim they're defending him. 
Right, right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, excellent. By the way, you've got some good notes in here, too, that I'll, I'll read. <laughs> no, you know what? He gets better. He gets better as he goes. Um, <laughs> let's see. I want to read to you here something that Bob pointed out. Notice the phrase. Oops, I hit a, something that I didn't want to hit. I'll get rid of that. Notice the phrase there, secretly induced. Uh, Paul Hill, Bob's commentator here that he cites, says that it means underhanded methods. And listen to what he says. This is Peterson of the Pillar Commentary. He says, quote, To the diaspora Jews, Stephen appeared to have violated the majesty of God by casting doubt on the sacredness and eternal significance of the law and the temple for his people. Does everyone hear that? So if you cast doubts upon the law or the temple... To the Jew, you're casting aspersions on the faith in total and upon God. You know, what's interesting, I talked to Bob one time about a passage. Remember in Deuteronomy 18 when Moses says that there's going to be a prophet like him that comes up from the ranks of Israel? There you have a promise in the Old Testament itself that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is going to be superseded. Okay? So... We have a promise in the Old Testament itself that there's going to be a unique prophet who comes onto the scene of history. Now, the reason this is significant is think about the Book of Mormonism. The Book of Mormons, they try to claim that they have apostles and prophets today. Okay, now, how can we say, well, you don't have a continuation of apostles and prophets, but in the New Testament we do? Well, the way we can say is, look, who fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies? Well, Christ does. And does the new covenant ever teach us to expect new, a new covenant? No. Jude 3 says we're to contend for the faith, what? Once for all handed down to the saints, right? And so we are expected then by the book of Revelation that the canon is closed, okay? All right. So uh, now, Bob, is there anything else you want to cite in this? Um, yeah, Luke twenty-one twenty-one. Luke twenty-one twenty-one. Can someone please read that? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, I see it here. Acts twenty-one, twenty-one. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Wow. Yeah. Now, notice the phrase, the walk according to the customs. When you ever see walking, it typically means to live it out, right? So they're to, they're, the claim is, is that they're teaching the people of God to be disobedient to Moses in the law. So all the way through Acts, there's an ongoing dispute mm. about who's truly faithful to Amen. Moses. Get that in the mic once, Bob. I think, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Throughout Acts, there's an ongoing dispute about who is really faithful to Moses. Wow. The apostles and their associates claimed that by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were faithful to Moses, who prophesied about Christ. The Jews said that they were not faithful to Moses because they were no longer requiring circumcision and keeping the food laws and so on. So this is a dispute throughout the New Testament. Wow. 
Yeah, no, no, you talked a lot about the problem with circumcision in the book of Galatians, and we did radio on that. Let's just talk about circumcision, because circumcision is often seen as the sign of being a Jew and being faithful to the Old Covenant. Think back to Genesis chapter 15. When Abraham's justified, is it before circumcision or is it after? It's before, right? And Paul makes that point in Romans chapter 4, doesn't he? Okay, so in Act, or excuse me, in Genesis 17, you have Abraham then is circumcised, and the Lord makes it very clear. Whoops, are you not hearing it? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I wasn't. Uh, yeah, circumcision of the heart is ultimately what we need. But just think about circumcision. Is what it says in Genesis 17 is that it's a sign of the covenant. Okay, now when Christ comes in. Christ is cut off from the land of the living for us. So think about the sign of circumcision is on the male, and the symbolism is that one day through procreation, the seed promise. Remember the seed? The seed is Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. Well, the seed is going to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, from David. And so circumcision is a sign of that. But when Messiah finally comes onto the scene of history, he undergoes circumcision for us in the sense that he's cut off from the land of the living. He's accursed. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So he's cut off. So there's the fulfillment of circumcision. So therefore, when you're in Christ, you have circumcision. When you're in Christ, you have the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Okay? And so that's why we're being consistent with what the Old Testament taught We're not uh, deviating in in any way. And this is exactly what Jesus said. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He filled to the full the requirements of the law by doing all the things that it predicted, all the things that it required, he fulfilled. And so if you're in Christ, then you fulfill the law. And therefore, you can say to the Sanhedrin, just as Stephen did, you're the one who's standing against Moses. If you don't come to Christ, you're standing against Moses. That's what Bob's... Amen. Amen. Yeah, thank you. All right. Okay. I could have said it better. No. <laughs> well, you could if you had a voice. Um, all right. Now, do you, do you want to... Next, next slide. Gotcha. All right. Did I go to the... No, I didn't go to the next one. Why is it not working? I'm sorry. For some reason, it's not working. I'll hit this button. There we go. All right. Okay, now we see Stephen is dragged before the Sanhedrin. Acts 6.12, it says, They incited the people, the elders and the experts in the law. Then they approached Stephen, seized him, and brought him before the council. Now, first it says, they, you wrote this down, Bob. They secretly induced, and now they incited or stirred up the, stirred up the people. And you said, in the Middle East... This is still characterized, oh, by mob action. So this is what you wanted to talk about, right? Yeah, yeah. do you want to try it? Israel is part of Western civilization. Yeah, right. They debate ideas. Right. The Arab tribes are still back, centuries back. Right, they tribalism. Try, they try to win by mob action. Right, well said. Yeah, so Bob wanted to relate that to today. Think about Israel. Israel, even though it's in the Mideast, it's really part of Western civilization, Western civilization was built on the Judeo-Christian ethic of the Old and the New Testament, okay? And what happens is in the Western civilization, if you have some sort of criminal activity, what you have is the rule of law. And so the government's designed to restrain evil. 
But when you go back to the culture of the Mideast, the backdrop that Israel is living in is a backdrop of tribalism, where you killed my cousin, my tribe comes and attacks you, and the strong horse wins. And so you have mob rule. Uh, Another example of this is today in the sermon, we're going to be looking at God's impartiality. Well, God also commands us in James 2.19 to be impartial. Think about this. You and I are commanded by God to be impartial in the new covenant. So when you and I look at America, and I'm not claiming, by the way, it's a Christian nation. I'm not. But there was a Judeo-Christian ethic behind Western civilization, so much so that you look at Lady Justice. Lady Justice is blindfolded, isn't she? Now, why would that be the case? Because in our justice system, you're not supposed to be partial to the rich or the poor. Now, think of the pagan ideas that are coming into our nation. Um, Elena Kagan, a very recent Supreme Court justice, uh, Sotomayor, both of them said in their confirmation hearings before the Senate that their role as a justice was to help the poor, this is Marxism, the have-nots, against the haves. Are you with me? Now, let's turn our Bibles real quick to Exodus 23. Let me just show you something. Exodus 23, God says you're not to do that. And so what we're simply showing is that God's word has a tremendous impact even on culture. Exodus 23. She's Jewish also, isn't she? Um, Yeah, ironically, I think you're right. Yeah. Let's see, I'm trying to find it here. This is what happens when I speak off the top of my head. Let's see, um, it's around verse 6. Notice 23.6, You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in this lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will acquit the wicked. And he says, And you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Somebody said verse 4. Oh, in verse 4. Oh, thank you. Okay, good. I went right by it. There, notice it says, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. This is 23.2. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial. Listen, you shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So notice justice is to be blind. It's to be on the merits of the case. The same thing in the New Testament. When Bob and I are your pastor, we're not to care whether you're wealthy or you're poor. You're not to care whether a brother or sister is powerful or weak. But see, the pagan world does care. They make distinctions about people that don't matter. All that matters at the end of the day is either you're in Christ or you're not. That's the distinction that ultimately matters. They incite the mob to enforce their ideas. Yes. Oh, put that in there. That's good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what's happening here is what Bob's saying is they're inciting the crowd to be like a mob in violence. So they're following this pagan ethic of tribalism rather than what God would have. So notice who's distorting justice. Is it Stephen or is it the mob? The mob is reacting against the very scriptures that they claim to uphold, you see? And so that's the irony that Bob wants us to see. Okay. Um, now, we still have mobs today. Yes. Right. Well said. Now, is there some other uh, things you want to point out on this? Should we read some of those? Oh, I wanted to talk about the arrangement meeting for a go. 
Oh, either to drag, to drag or to lead. Or to oh, lead. to lead. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so he wants to talk about this Greek verb ago, which is right where it says. Notice it says that they seized him. That's the verb, correct? Ago. Ago. Yeah, the verb ago. What's interesting? There's a range of meaning in the Greek, and it can either mean to lead someone. Or it can mean to drag them and seize them. And so here the context clearly shows because of their lawlessness, they're not just leading them, they're seizing them, right? And brought them before the... And brought. Oh, it's okay, it's brought. But they dragged him. Right. But we can be led by the Spirit. It's a different part of the... Oh, interesting, yeah. Yeah, very good, yeah. Okay, so Bob's point is, I don't know if anyone heard that, but oftentimes ago in the New Testament is used for the Spirit leading us. And how does the Spirit lead us? Well, by the Scriptures, right? So when you're a pagan, you're not led by the Spirit through the Scriptures. What do you do? You seize people. You become a barbarian. Do you see the irony? You and I are led by the Spirit. We want to dialogue. Stephen wants to dialogue and reason with them. He wants to lead them to the Scriptures. He wants to lead them to the truth. He wants to lead them to the Scriptures because then they'll be led by the Spirit ago. But instead, there's a reversal. They're like pagans, mobsters, who seize him and bring him a go before the council. That's the, that's the, I think that's what you're pointing out. Yes. Excellent. I wish, I wish you could say it. <laughs> Very well said. Okay. All right. Now, what else would you like to point out here, Bob? Oh, let's go to 613. 613? Okay. All right. So we're looking at false witnesses now, Acts 613. It says they put forward false witnesses who said this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. Wow. Now they're lying, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, who is Exodus 20.16? Or we can have somebody here. Exodus 20.16, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Wow, how ironic. So here, they're breaking the own law. Here the Jews are so self-righteous with Stephen. They're breaking the own, their own law that they are accusing him of breaking. So very ironic indeed. Now, you say here in your notes, Bob, they took Jesus' sayings about his body, oh yeah, his death and resurrection, to be a threat to destroy the literal temple. That's in John chapter 2. Do you remember Jesus says, I'll tear down this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again? Well, John points out that it was obviously a metaphor that he was speaking of the death of his body, and its resurrection, but they took it literally that somehow he was going to destroy the temple. In fact, somebody want to read that? John 2. Is well, actually, it? let's do where he did say he destroy it. Oh, okay, yeah. Which uh, passage is that, Luke Bob? The 21. Oh, okay. Okay, good. Yeah, does somebody want to read Luke 21 6? And yeah, in fact, yeah, verse 5 and 6. Luke 21 5 and 6. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. He said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another. That shall not be thrown down. Is that the right one? Yeah, exactly. So Bob's grand point here is, look who ends up destroying the temple. It's the Romans. That happens in 70 AD. So that's after this, right? Now, why is it ultimately destroyed? Well, because of their sin. One thing I want to point out here in, in Luke 21, here you have 
Holy, it's, yeah, Luke 21, 6. Let's see. Yeah, look at Luke 21, 5. It says, And while they were speaking in the temple, how it was adorned in noble sons or noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things you see, the days will come when they are not to be left one stone upon another, and they'll be thrown down. And they asked, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of these things that are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. Now, what's interesting is during that time, you have many false Christs that come about in the first century. And what's very interesting is here the Jews would give allegiance to these false messiahs, but they won't give their allegiance to whom? To the true messiah. So this false messiah that rises up during this revolt that starts around 66 A.D., it leads them to what? The destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Jesus says, I come in my Father's name, but when another comes in my name, you'll receive him, but you won't receive me. So there's a lot of irony here in this whole passage. So, yes. Yeah. We'll do the John 2 on the next slide. John 2 on the next slide. Gotcha. Is there anything else? So they are lawbreakers. Notice Exodus 20, 16. And this, again, would become a common charge against the apostles, that they were the lawbreakers. So there's the irony that's, that Bob's pointing. Who's, who's the lawbreaker? Right, well said. Okay, so move to the next one, the final slide. Okay. You know what? I don't have enough voice. In America, our history is always a debate about who the sinners are. Yes. Well said. Um, do you want to tell that story of the, um, I think it's so good for this, do you remember the man who is a prison guard and he's watching the... Oh, yeah. They don't think they're the bad guys. Do you want me to share that they were for you? Watching <laughs> okay, let me share this. This is one of the most precious stories. Bob, I used to roll when he would tell me this. So, talk about, okay, so the debate is who? Is about what? It's about who is the lawbreaker. So, the Sanhedrin thinks they're the good guys, and Stephen's the bad guy. And there's a human propensity to always think that we're the good guys. Well, we're always in the right. Why? Well, because we're us. Now, an example that Bob gave one time was he knew of a man who was a prison guard in a prison. And as a prison guard, he sees, obviously, what the prisoners are doing. Well, a bunch of prisoners are watching these Charles Bronson movies, you know, the Death Wish series. And that's where Charles Bronson is a vigilante, and he kills all the criminals. Well, all the criminals are watching this in prison, and they're cheering Charles Bronson, who's killing them. And so what happens is Bob points out that the security guard, this guy that he knows, goes up to them and, and says, don't you understand that Bronson's killing you? And they don't see it. Why? Because human, human pride, we're always the good guys. That's exactly what's going on with the Jews. The irony is they're the bad guys. They're the lawbreakers. They're the ones who are not leading people to the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's the severe irony. That's my favorite story of all time to illustrate that. It's really good. So, oh, okay, now, I'm sorry, you want to move on? we got to read one, one more slide. Gotcha. There we go. So here we have the unwitting testimony for the gospel, Acts 6, 14 through 15. Continues, he says, For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Wow, so there you have a reference to Moses. We'll talk about that. 
But notice here it says Jesus predicted his own resurrection. Right here you have it in Mark 14, 57 and 58. Does somebody want to read that passage? Mark 14, 57 through 59. Does anyone have that? I, I could read it otherwise. Bob, you put it here. Okay, Mike, thanks. Mark what? Uh, 14, 57 through 59. We got plenty of time. We still got 10 minutes, so... Fifty-seven. Yeah, we'll start there and through 59. All right. Um, Some stood up and were giving false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will demolish this sanctuary made by human hands, and in three days I will build another one not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even on this. Wow. So I, I think what Bob's pointing out by highlighting we have heard him say, here you don't even have the consistent testimony with two or three witnesses as required in Deuteronomy 19. Is that one of your points? So here they're violating again the law that they purport they're to. They're giving unwitting testimony to the gospel. Oh, yes. Very good point. Yeah. If you ever read the book, Who Moved the Stone? Yes, I've got that because you told me to buy it. I yeah. bought that. Yeah, there's a book. <laughs> there's a book called Who Moved the Stone? Bob recommended it. It's excellent. What it is, it's a defense of Christianity. And one of the great pieces of defense is, this is very profound. Notice the enemies of the gospel are saying, we heard him say, and they're talking about destroying this place. Well, obviously, it's a reference to the resurrection of Christ. So unwittingly, the enemies of the gospel are giving evidence that Jesus Christ himself predicted and fulfilled his own resurrection. Wow. So the enemies of the gospel are giving backhanded support to the claim that Jesus really did predict his resurrection. That's oftentimes when you give the gospel, I love it when you say he's the only one who ever predicted his resurrection and then also pulled it off. That's very astute. No one else has ever done that. So very good. Now, this place, we're going to talk about this place in John chapter 2. They're accusing Jesus of claiming to destroy the temple. Let's read John two nineteen through 22 together. I'll read, I've got the text right here. Just turn to it if you will. John 2, verse 19, all the way through 22. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, he's debating again with the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now notice the response, verse 20. It says, the Jews therefore said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Now, let me just stop there for a moment. There is some debate in verse 20 as to whether it took 46 years to build it, or whether it's better rendered that it's been standing for 46 years. But regardless, you get the idea. Verse 21 And by the way, the only reason I mention that is if anyone has a chance to read the chronological aspects of the life of Christ, this ties into the timing of Jesus' ministry. That's why it matters. That's another excellent book. But in verse 21, he says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Verse 22, it says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he said this, and they believe the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So again, Jesus wasn't inciting violence against the temple he was talking about himself. And unwittingly, here the enemies of the gospel support Jesus' claim and the claims of the later Christians that Christ really did predict his own resurrection and then pulled it off. Now, 
Here it says the Sabbath controversies, and you wanted to read Luke 14, Bob? Somebody, can someone read Luke 14, 1 through 6? Now, one Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a leader of the Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There, right in front of him, was a man suffering from dropsy. So Jesus asked the experts in religious law and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So Jesus took hold of the man, healed him, and sent him away. Then he said to them, which of you, if you have a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? But they could not reply to this. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, so the religious leaders of Israel have this compulsion about Sabbath where they want to come up with all this Talmud and all of this law-keeping, but then they forget what it's all about. And what we inter- what's interesting is in the New Covenant, where does our Sabbath rest ultimately, where is it ultimately found? It's found in Christ, isn't it? So Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath, and that's one of the arguments that he makes. Think about this line of reasoning that Jesus uses. In the book of Matthew, and I, Bob, you may remember where this is exactly, but in Matthew, Jesus reasons with the Pharisees, and he says, hey, isn't it true that the priests are working on the Sabbath? After, Matthew 12, that's what I thought. Okay, so here you have the priests are working, and they have to agree, yes, the priests are working on Sabbath, so therefore... They're working on Sabbath. Does everyone get the rub? Okay, well, it's okay for them to do that. Why? Because the work of the priest in the sacrificial system is more important than the Sabbath. But then Jesus says, ironically, he is the sacrifice. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is greater than the temple sacrifices, which are greater than the Sabbath. Does everyone see that? So Sabbath rest is found in him. And the irony is that those who are squabbling with the minutia of Sabbath are losing out on true Sabbath rest, which is found in Jesus Christ. I remember for years, my grandma and grandpa, they were uh, Dutch Reformed, and they would never want to do anything on Sunday. And the reason why is they thought that they were honoring it by, you know, honoring the Sabbath by not working. But one day I sat down with them and I showed them from the scripture that the way you honor Sabbath and the way you keep Sabbath and the way you enter into Sabbath rest isn't by a religious ritual, but it's by coming to Christ. Because in Christ, you have a Sabbath rest, not just temporarily, not just one day a week, but you have it eternally. So in a sense, we as the people of God then have Sabbath rest every day of our lives. Why? Because we're in Christ. And, and that's what Bob is wanting us to see here. So um, anything else? That, okay, good. Yeah, the shiny face. Oh, the shiny face, yes, okay. Yeah, this Exodus uh, thirty-five twenty-nine through 35. And it came about when Moses was coming down from, the Mount, from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. Wow. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterward, 
and afterward all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, what he had been commanded. The sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. Wow. So Moses' face shines because he's been with God. Stephen's face shines because he also, in a sense, has been with God, hasn't he? He's with Christ. And so just as the Israelites couldn't handle the glory that emanated from Moses, they can't handle it from Stephen, so much so that they want to kill him. Okay, Moses radiated glory from the old covenant, and the people can't stand it. He has to have a mediation over his face, a veil. And here the Sanhedrin can't stand the fact that this Stephen, the glory that radiates from him because he's been with God, he's been with Christ, they can't stand him, so they're going to shut him up. They're going to kill him. And so that's the the deep irony that I think we're to see. You've got a great quote here from the Peterson uh, Pillar Commentary. Listen to this. It says, Stephen spoke calmly as one who saw the glory of Christ, who, by the way, the reference is 755 of Acts, who was filled with his spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, and who appeared to be his authorized witness and messenger. Other biblical references suggest that an encounter with a genuine representative of God can be interpreted as seeing the face of God, Genesis 33.10, that's very good, or meeting his angel, 1 Samuel 29.9. This description of Stephen paves the way for his speech, implying that it is an inspired utterance, which is to be received as an expression of the mind of God. Wow, unquote. Very good. Very good stuff, Bob. Yes. Listen to Stephen. Yes, listen to Stephen, just like listen to Moses, come to Christ. Amen. Um, there's one other thing you want to uh, point out here. This place, did you want to? It's just their way of talking about the temple. Oh, okay, I see. That's what you want to point out. Yeah. Well, now, let's just stop here for a moment. Does anybody have any questions or comments that they want to throw forward? Yeah, Mike. Going back to slide number three, this is kind of a new idea for me um, where Christ is circumcised for us. He fulfilled the law. He was cut off from the land of the living. If you could just kind of flush that out a little bit for us. I'm sorry, say that again. Where you say he's cut off from the land of the living, and that was done through the circumcision? Through circumcision? I mean, just... Just think about this idea of cutting. Why don't we have to do circumcision today? And I think the image is that what was it a sign of? It was a sign of the old covenant. Uh, so you look at the fact that Abraham's justified in Acts 15, or excuse me, Genesis 15, 6. He believed God, it was credited him his righteousness. So he's clearly justified by faith alone. So the way Paul reasons in Romans 4 is justification is certainly before circumcision. And therefore, it's apply, apl- applicable to anyone, whether Jew or Gentile. Anyone who comes to faith is going to be justified. So what's circumcision? Well, circumcision in Genesis 17, I think it's, uh, well, I'd have to look at the specific reference, but it says it's a sign, the oath in the Hebrew. It's a sign of the covenant. So it's not the covenant itself, but it's a sign of the covenant. So remember, 
In Genesis 15, you have the covenant is cut. The term in Hebrew is karath barith. Uh, you, you cut a covenant, okay? So what would happen is in the ancient Near East, if you're going to cut a covenant with a, a tribe, you would have the tribe that you're at war with, you would cut the animal and you'd put its blood out and you would walk the blood path and say, if I ever, ever go against the terms of the covenant, may what happened to that filthy animal happen to me in sevenfold. Well, the other party would do the same thing. If I go against the terms of the covenant, well, in Genesis 15, there's only one party. Abraham's asleep, so God alone walks the blood path. And if he ever goes against the covenant, he's assigned himself this potential curse, as it were. May what happened to the animal happen to me, the Holy One of Israel. Wow. So unilaterally, he's going to bring about these promises. But in Genesis 17, the sign that you know that my promise is with you is the cutting of the male. Because through procreation, the seed, the male, is going to come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. When you look at, like, for instance, Colossians chapter 2, you have the circumcision of Christ. And in the circumcision of Christ, we have the fulfillment of circumcision. He's the one who's cut off from the land of the living because he was what it was pointing to. The procreation leads to the Messiah. Well, the Messiah is here. So just as Paul says, you know, don't follow anyone or obey anyone who commands, you know, uh, Sabbath laws, etc. These things are a shadow of the fulfillment that was to come, right? So... The particular term I'm struggling with a little bit is the land of the living. If you could, you know. yeah, this idea of cutting off. A lot of times, this idea of being cut off would have to do simply with die. And so you see the same term that's used of circumcision. So there's an interplay between physical circumcision and the implication that ultimately leads to death. If you're cut okay. off, like in Daniel nine, um, he's the one who's going to be cut off. Right. Well, who's cut off? Well, the Messiah is. Okay, the same term is used in Hebrew. So this idea that cutting off, there's a... Does everybody know what a double entendre is? Yes. A double entendre, there's really a couple of nuances to it. Not only is it a physical cutting, but it's a sign that Messiah comes and he's going to be cut off. Okay, he's it's going to be crucified. He's going to die exactly. for us. Okay, it's that So their simple. circumcision yeah. right, right there, he was yeah. cut for me. That, that's the idea. Yep. So that's fulfilled. Yeah, well said. Um, well, we can talk after. We can fellowship. But I want to just thank Bob for all the research that you've done and thank you for putting this together for us so thank you <laughs> i'm sorry you don't uh well, well let's pray let's pray for bob again heavenly father we thank you so much for our teacher i pray for him lord i pray that you would heal him i pray that you'd give him his voice back quickly so that we could hear these wonderful things we thank you so much for him i pray for blessings upon our body today i thank you so much for all the hard work for our, from our congregation that's all through your spirit I pray for wonderful Christian unity in a time of fellowship. We thank you, Lord, for all of our blessings. They all come from your hand. In Jesus' name, amen.